I just snore. Also, I just don't even know that I'm asleep. I have I'll a C I have a CPAP machine. Do you really? Yeah. You are listening to the Mount Rushmore podcast. I'm Jeff Hopkins, and I'm joined by my good buddies Richard Manfredi, hello, and Michael Winfield. Howdy. And Richard and Michael spend most of their time arguing uh, with each other about the Mount Rushmore of life. In fact, they've spent 24 episodes of this podcast arguing about the Mount Rushmore of life, the four things that best represent a certain topic. And this is our 25th anniversary of our podcast. Isn't that exciting? Yeah. Boy, wow. No, this is, I mean, this is, you know, listen, this is a big, this is the next one after 24 and right before 26. You know what? As Joe Biden would say, it's a big fucking deal. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> if this podcast were 25 years old, a 25-year-old person, they would maybe... Still have, be living with their still mother be living with their in, this, mom. <laughs> in this economy. Or in my case, kind of finishing college still. <laughs> uh, it's tough to get a liberal arts degree, get all those requirements and math. Maybe yeah, kind of out there trying to get a job. Yeah, every um, I think in the future, every twenty-five episodes, you'll you'll hear like a special one. A special one. I think this is a special episode because I think this is. I mean, we'll get to the topic in a second. Yeah. But this is something that definitely Richard and I have bonded over over oh, the last sure. decade. And I think there might have been, might have been one of the first things that when we had first met for a while and really didn't know each other, I think a shared love of Wes Anderson might have been one of the first things. At least I remember going. Oh, this Mike guy, this Mikey guy, may not be too bad. Oh, Uncle wow. Mike is Uncle back. Uncle Mike. <laughs> well, Richard kind of uh, maybe dropped a hint there. The director of the film Rushmore, which is the subject of our Rushmore Mount Rushmore podcast. And I'd just like to add that there is a subtitle to this category. It's not just Mount Rushmore of Rushmore. It's Mount Rushmore of Rushmore and specific things, not just like the music. You feel me? Yeah. That's the full title. Okay. So that's going to be hard to get into the uh, iTunes uh, ID3 stuff, by the way. Use a smaller font. Ah, there we go. <laughs> so we, we think anybody who has a, an opinion about this film might have this kind of general feel about the vibe of it and the atmosphere that's created by it or whatever. And we want to get granular. Just drill down. Drill down. All right. So uh, I guess you guys both are fans of this, and it was part of your kind of uh, courting I guess, ceremony between each other. Ritual, mate- Ritual. mating, yeah. I but saw you, I saw you acor- across the quad, and I started throwing uh, acorns at you. You called <laughs> truce. and <laughs> So who's, who's going to start us off? Uh, Richard should. I think that, I, think I uh, picked this category, right? Yeah, I, I believe so. All right, so my first choice is a little bit chronological. I'm trying to go a little bit chronological here. And my first one is Herman Bloom's speech that he gives to the students at Rushmore Academy. Uh, right near pretty much at the beginning of the movie. You guys have oh, let's take a listen. I never had it like this where I grew up. But I send my kids here because the fact is you go to one of the best schools in the country, Rushmore. Now, for some of you, it doesn't matter. You were born rich and you're going to stay rich. But here's my advice to the rest of you. Take dead aim on the rich boys. Get them in the crosshairs and take them down. Just remember, they can buy anything, but they can't buy backbone. Don't let them forget. So that's pretty much it. That's pretty much, if you need, what, 90 seconds to pretty much sum up this character and his feelings about the world, I like. that's I, it. I do like that... Uh, in that scene, also Max is cribbing notes Taking in calligraphy. Best, and it's ever. And it says something like, uh, "Rich kids 
bad. bad. And then with a question mark too. It's perfect. Yeah, and he's cribbing it like in the actual like Bible or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think he's doing it in a Bible, isn't he? Because they're, they're be. in chapel. Yeah. Uh, I love the fact that he was woken up to like watch this, that he'd been like completely like zonked out right before. <laughs> but I, I just love the, the the tenor of the speech, the fact that basically he's talking about Donnie and Ronnie that we learn, you know, later on his two his awful kids. Awful, awful kids who are have been like given the silver spoon and and have a sense of entitlement. And it kind of sets you up, especially as you get later on in the film, spoiler alert, find out that that Max's dad is actually a, a barber and not a neurosurgeon. It does kind of set you up for some of the reasons why maybe he sees a little bit of a kinship with Max mm-hmm. at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it's funny as hell speech, too. Yeah. yeah. In a little bit of reading, learning that Owen and Luke Wilson's father gave that said speech to, oh, did to they? the school in which they attended. So he essentially went up on stage and, and they, they told um, Wes Anderson about it. Yeah, our dad went and gave the speech, basically target the rich kids. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that comes from their history. And I do like the fact that after the speech is done, he's talking to uh, Brian Cox, the uh, Guggenheim. Yeah. And Professor Guggenheim is just like, oh, that was a good speech. I need to have you back here. Not even like just totally ob- either oblivious or not caring about the tenor of the speech because yeah. Herman Bloom gives him a ton of money. Yeah. Just doesn't give a shit. All right, so what's your first one? That actually, that scene leads into my first choice, which is the uh, is the montage scene with uh, music from uh, the creation, uh, Making Time. Sure. It runs down the list of all of the uh, clubs, clubs and activities, uh, including uh, editor-in-chief of the Yankee Review, um, president of the Calligraphy Club, uh, track and field JV decathlon, and then uh, ends just perfectly on a Piper Club, Piper Cub Club, four point five hours long. My favorite was still the uh, Yankee Racers. Uh huh. Where it, small fact, it's actually Wes Anderson and Luke Wilson. Who oh, are driving around driving the other two. Yeah, that's perfect. But you know, I, I love that scene because it kind of it sets up everything about. Uh, like his interests are so fractured, and he will do anything other than like. He loves doing all this stuff within his school, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's not like it means anything. Yeah. It's all these diversions and distractions, and he's this you know, he's a director and a conductor, and he's you know this kid that is all over the place. Yeah. And then, um, but it ultimately, is about going to the school. And then when he's he, later on, when he's expelled and he joins the public school, the first thing he says, "I noticed you don't have a fencing club, right?" And that's <laughs> I'd like to start one, yeah, because <laughs> that seems to be the way he kind of socializes, In- ingratiates and himself with later, people. Later starts the uh, kite flying society, yeah. <laughs> and so he hasn't learned any lesson. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I do like the fact from that scene that immediately after, yeah, you know, I think pretty soon after that we get the, uh, you know. You just do whatever you do what do what you what you enjoy and do that for the rest of your life. And for me, it's Rushmore. Yeah. That I mean, that pretty much encapsulates what you saw in that scene before. It's just you know he has made this little world for himself, but it's so insular because for the most part, it's like the same five or six kids that are in all these clubs. Usually, it's him and Dirk and like one or two other kids, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's created this like super insular world where he is like the king of like these little clubs. But what you realize is sort of in, in in the grander context of Rushmore Academy, he's kind of an outcast. Well, it's yeah. funny because that actually jumps into my second pick. And we'll, we'll just, I mean, we're, I think we're going to kind of step on each other a little bit. Oh, sure. Yeah, I think this will be a, a rotating, running dialogue here. But the thesis of the movie really comes down, to, at least to me, to 
Um, just that one interaction when Herman Bloom says, What's, What's the secret, man? Max? The secret? Yeah, well, you seem to have it pretty figured out. Secret, I don't know. I, I think you just gotta find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your the life. Secret is like, yeah, you seem like you've got it all figured out. For me, out. it's going to Rushmore. He's like, like, just like you said, it's, you gotta find one thing that you love and it's going to Rushmore. And it kind of plays in later when, like, the, the love triangle jumps in. Sure. And, you know... Uh, she was my brush Miss Cross, yeah. yeah. Like, his going to school became so less important than impressing this one woman. Right. And um, I thought it was all just perfectly and, like, beautifully summed up with just, just that interaction. Of the, that the one interaction, mm -hmm. yeah. With, with uh, Bloom, yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, so it uh, looks like Michael has done... Is that your second then, Michael? Yeah. Okay, what's your second, Richard? All right, so my second is... I guess, broadly speaking, drunk Max Fisher. Mm. Yeah. Oh, are they? Yeah, and very specifically that line. Although rewatching the uh, that whole scene, I just caught two or I mean, there's two or three other really great things about it. But so if to recap, and I'm sure you guys have seen the movie, but it's after the performance of of Max Fisher's Serpico. <laughs> yeah. It's Max Fisher's Serpico, a play by Max. Playback by Max Fisher. Um, he realizes that Miss Cross has brought a male friend to this to the performance, played by Luke Wilson, mm -hmm. um, who is a doctor, and this really upsets uh, Max Fisher because he thought this was more of a romantic reason she was coming to see the show. Well, it's interesting because she immediately like he becomes a threat to his new Rushmore. Yeah, exactly. So it's something that has to be like almost taken out. <laughs> so, so. They get he winds up inviting her to dinner and Herman comes along too. No, he invites. No, invites I, he invites. Yeah, invites the two, two of them. Mm -hmm. Does not invite. Uh, does not invite her. Her her beau, but he kind of like winds up coming along and Herman buys buys whiskey for Max even though he's fifteen, <laughs> which he later admits. Yeah, maybe that wasn't the best idea. <laughs> um, and proceeds he proceeds just to get really drunk and kind of insult. The his uh, the boyfriend repeatedly and snidely and, and just insinuating, well, why did you show up and all this kind of stuff, yeah. leading with this uh, kind of leading up to this classic line. I like your nurse's uniform, guy. These are OR scrubs. Oh, are they? Well, they're totally inappropriate for the occasion. Well, I didn't know we were going to dinner. That's because you weren't invited. Take it easy, Max. So that might be the fun. I don't know, just maybe the funniest line of the single line of the movie to me. And it's it's that it's Bill Murray's reaction to it where he looks like he's about ready to like cough up a pimento or something. Yeah, the balls on this kid. Yeah. Uh, again, another, I think, bonding scene with him and between him and Max where he sees a, a lot of him kind of but maybe the more optimistic version of him in some ways. I don't, not quite sure, hmm. but it's it's sort of this refracted through the lens of not being completely crushed by middle age. Yeah, there's a couple of really good lines like within that entire scene. He says, "Like I wrote a hit play and directed it. What yeah. did you I, ever do? I'm not sweating do. it either. Yeah, I'm not sweating it yeah. either. <laughs> and actually, he even says, um, "I wrote a hit play. What did you ever do?" Which is a phrase that he repeats later. And he says, I saved Latin. What did you ever what do? What did you ever do? Right. He has like, he has just this anger, this 15 year old anger of like, 
that self-importance and he's like mm-hmm. these are these huge accomplishments that i've done and everyone is yeah. older and smarter and more developed than him yeah and he, he keeps coming back to which it. I, which does kind of play itself out in a lot of his interactions especially the early ones with miss cross mm-hmm. where he they'll be having a conversation and she'll say something like well you know my husband died he died last year and like instead of knowing how to kind of carry go through with that conversation and naturally say oh i'm sorry for your loss what happened his reaction is, oh, well, my mom died too. Yeah. She died of cancer. So we both have dead people in our family. Right. So it's just like he doesn't – it's almost like this thing where he doesn't really understand how to interact with people mm-hmm. in a real way. Yeah. And it kind of just gets repeated over that, and over again. That is funny because I think the the fact – one thing I have in common with Max Fisher is I think I spent a lot of my youth – doing things to essentially show, run and show other people. Like as a kid, you do that all the time. You make a piece of art and you bring it home to your parents and show mom and dad. They put it up on the fridge or something like that. And I did a lot of plays. I did a lot of art. Uh, I, I wanted to be an artist for quite some time. Uh, and it was always, it was never for the sake of just, Max Fisher doesn't do things because he loves doing them. And it's just for Max Fisher. He wants everybody in the world to know that he does them. And his Max Fisher Players Productions, he invites all these people. He's doing it for attention and for love, and he's trying to find – he's so hungry for all this approval. And I find that fascinating because I, I think of this film as in this interesting continuum. And I'll just pick a couple of random films to kind of bookend it. But uh, Ferris Bueller. In Ferris Bueller, he's this kind of child – prodigy who does all these different things he also has these skills he has this larger than life personality and everybody in his school loves him that's not true with right. <laughs> half of the people want to punch him or think he's a jerk usually he's adored by the kids who are younger than him yep and then i think of of napoleon dynamite which i think came out i don't know four or five years after rushmore and there's a kid who's pretty much kind of uh ignored or berated by every kid in the school but all of them. Yeah, seem- he has his friend. He has his friend, right? Yeah, <laughs> and and only develops that friend in the course of the movie. There's nothing yeah. that really leads up to it that you think, oh, he's had someone that like it's either just you know his brother Kip, yeah, or a llama, or and something. that's yeah, Uncle yeah. Rico, yeah, Uncle yeah. Rico, who doesn't really like they don't like each other. No, exactly. Yeah. yeah, but it seems like all these films are definitely about this kind of person finding their obviously the maturation process is about finding your authentic self, and I think that's a kind of fun to compare those. To each other. Um, authentic is what we'd love to uh, be with you. We want to get in a real dialogue with you guys, our listeners, and we want to invite you to come on to mountainrushmorepodcast.com uh, where you can find links to all our shows or go to iTunes and look up our podcast and rate and review. You know, give it a one, give it a five, leave a positive comment, don't leave a good comment. We don't care. We just want people to know that we're out there, and we want like-minded people to connect with the podcast. You can also connect with us out on Facebook and Twitter and even uh, Instagram. And we would love to have your insight on our show, some suggestions as to topics that we can approach, your suggestions on the topics that we have covered already. We just uh, we want to talk with you. We want we're to talk bored. To you. We're lonely. We're bored, sad. We don't leave this room. Ever. How's, no. How's that Snapchat <laughs> thing going, Jeff, that you said you were going to set up oh, crap, a month I ago? I keep meaning to say Instagram, and I always say Snapchat. Hey, we're on Pokemon Go, guys. <laughs> there, is, there is a rush more Pokemon out You can there. go ahead and, and hunt Michael. <laughs> I would encourage you to stalk him and then throw balls at him. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm the devolved version of whichever one you're going to catch. <laughs> Okay. You're, he's a, you're a Digimon, Michael, let's be honest. <laughs>
Uh, Richard, give us your third. All right, so my third, kind of piggybacking a little bit on what we've been talking about, is very speci- is the Max Fisher players, but very specifically the production of Heaven and Hell. This is actually also my third pick, oh, too. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, good. We can get really get into this. And I love this idea, first off, that the one thing... Now, you mentioned he kind of does these plays for attention and the largest, the kind of wanting the notoriety. But at the same time, that's also kind of... You, you sort of think that's like the one thing he actually is good at or actually has a passion for. Well, he's really good at like plagiarizing someone else's work. Well, which will make him a Hollywood <laughs> writer in about 10 or 15 years. So mm-hmm. that's fine. But if you remember, that's the whole reason he got the scholarship into the Rushmore Academy in the first place. Sure, for plagiarizing probably all the president's men. Probably, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they never quite say that, and they kind of only hint at it when with like when he puts on Serpico yeah. by Max Fisher. <laughs> and then you just see all these elements of uh, Apocalypse Now and sure, yeah. uh, Full Metal Jacket and... Well, like I said, you know, with 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 ninety percent of all Hollywood movies being remakes, I'm sure he's in development now at a at a at a Universal or I something. I like to think Rushmore Academy just has a one slot for poor kids who live in the city that Rushmore is in, and the befuddled dean just grabs Max Fisher by random, and Max Fisher believes that he is pulled selected from the rabble due to his incredible intellect. Right. When it was probably just a, a dice roll, random chance. But, so but, I, 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 but I do like the fact that he that it's supposed to be the one thing that you're led to believe he actually has a passion for. But yet on his report card, he got like a 43. Oh, a really? Or two. Yeah, I went and watched like <laughs> when they give him like the lousy report card that he's going to he's on double academic probation. Yeah. Yeah. One, one of the one of the classes is theater, too. And he got a 43. That's amazing. I've never noticed that. Before. Yeah, I, I, I had neither. <laughs> I, I'd stop it and, and see it. And that's pretty a great little detail. But heaven and hell to me. In a lot of ways, I, I suspect it's a sort of a, a satire on all of those big budget musicals that you saw, especially like in the 90s. There were a ton of those, ton of musicals that were more based on the spectacle. Like Miss Saigon. Yeah, I was thinking about that because like when the, at the Amundsen, like when Miss Saigon came and it was the big deal was the, the, the specifically the helicopter that would come down mm-hmm. for the, the fall of Saigon or... You know, Phantom of the Opera when the chandelier comes down and there's Lord Tommy or a lot of this sort of stuff. So that's kind of what you get with Heaven and Hell. It's the, you know, it's all kind of flash and explosions and under your your seat you'll find safety ga- safety glasses and mm-hmm. ear, earplugs. I do like also, I like that it seems to be, you know, it's it, it wraps up the movie and it seems like it's an apology to uh, Herman. Sure. Where, you know, one of the first interactions that he and he and Max have is, you know, he asks him if, you know. Were you in Vietnam? Yeah, I was in the shit. Were you in the shit? <laughs> yeah, were you in the shit? I was in the, I was shit. In the shit. And it kind of all comes back to, you know, at the, end of the, at the end of the play, Herman stands up and throws his fist in the air and just like in recognition of like, yeah, man, this is this is what I went through, yeah. even though it's all, you know, yeah. 16-year-olds yeah. <laughs> on a stage in <laughs> Cleveland and again, it's a garbage play. Most yeah. assuredly, it's a garbage play, but everyone loves it. That's the amazing thing. It's mm-hmm. like nobody can tell that it's a garbage play, mainly specifically because of all the explosions and cool shit happening on mm-hmm. stage. You know, like the uh, PE coach talking to Mr. Little Jean. So what do you think about the play? I didn't know they needed all the explosions. What do you think about the play? Fucking best play ever, best man. Best play ever, man. <laughs> Which I think pretty much just sums, sums, up, sums up maybe the role of theater in the 90s. In a lot of ways, the spectacle. Yeah, we're all trying to top Phantom of the Opera in the '90s. There was uh, what what was pretty cool about it is 
that year for like the MTV Mo- Movie Awards. Well, yeah, the Max Fisher players. Yeah, like, I, I watched that today. Yeah. yeah. Did you? Yeah. They brought. They brought. They did what? Three or four of them? Maybe three. They did three. They did Armageddon. Out of sight. Out of sight. And uh, Truman Show. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm Max Fisher. A group of executives at music television, MTV, has commissioned my company, the Max Fisher Players, in conjunction with a team of visual effects specialists we've assembled, to produce a series of theatrical adaptations of some of this year's most outstanding films on the occasion of the 1999 MTV Movie Awards. We'll be performing, out of sight, The Truman Show in Armageddon. We hope that you enjoy the place. And they, you know, applied the same sort of light better than average set and yeah. but like something always went wrong and it kind yeah. of go roll with it roll with it <laughs> so kids there was this time when MTV was this could be a cool thing sometimes and that was back then yeah. the music television yeah it was a shame that they never kind of continued that or yeah I know is, is, there, is there anything uh, okay, else there's, there's a shame about everything with about MTV, MTV at this yeah point. there's a shame of, about MTV full stop yeah so is there anything else about about heaven and hell that stuck out to you yeah uh I I like how it resonated with this torture. See, Heaven and Hell, Heaven and Hell is t- this tortured Tommy Lee Jones American uh, uh, war veteran who is in the way of this perhaps positive relationship he could have with his wife in, I guess, heaven, you know, and because he's going through hell. And does that resonate with uh, Max's relationship with uh, oh, Miss Cross? Miss Cross, yeah. Well, and I, I well, okay, I'll, I'll get to it. I'll get to the last part in a minute. Go ahead. I, it triggered something for me, but it relates to my last pick. Oh, God, so. he's, you got triggered. Not I, worry, Rogers. <laughs> I think it was also one of those... I think it helped Max as a character move on to his next... Next... Whatever next BS he was going to do. Sure. You know, with uh, Margaret Yang, you know, there's a... That relationship, you could see the embers of it start sure. with the Kite Flying Society and everything, mm-hmm. and then, you know, it kind of sums up there in the last dance scene. Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, we have each, I believe, mentioned our three ch- three of our choices, right? Correct. So who's going to start with four? Uh, I guess I will. We're, sure. We've been kind of flipping back yeah. and forth. Yeah. Uh, my fourth thing is that Max is a liar. And he displays being a liar throughout the entire movie, just constantly. Mm-hmm. He's just he's just a BS artist. Con artist. He yeah, is a from, con artist. From, from, yeah, from like the get-go. He... Um, like you said earlier, he lies to Herman about his dad being a neurosurgeon. And, you know, that comes back to this, the class thing. Mm-hmm. He's obviously in a situation where he's in class of a lower class yeah. in a high class society. Which is weird because then he makes the comment when he offers him the job like, look, I may not be of the high class like you. I, my family may – my dad may only be a doctor. Yeah, he plays yeah. both sides. He <laughs> plays both sides of the aisles with that. Um, he lies to people about building the aquarium. Uh, he lies to Magnus about getting a hand job from uh, Dirk's mom. And then lies to Dirk then about lies not to saying Dirk. it. Yeah. Uh, lies to Miss Cross about mm-hmm. being run over by a, a car and his bicycle just yeah. to get into her room. Yeah. yeah. And like set that set that entire thing up. Just him as this just 15-year-old con artist was the perfect way that you could say it. Yeah. The liar. Tr- the truth is inconvenient to Max. Um, mm-hmm. I do like, though, that there is a tiny bit that feels like it's inherited from his dad. Yeah, where like he brings him his report card, <laughs> yeah. in the barber chair, and it's a thirty-seven. Yeah, you almost got f- the. A. And then he fills it in, and says, "Well, you almost got the A." Yeah. You're like, "Dad," and like it's like you could like I love the father-son bond there. Sure, yeah. And uh, even later on, when like his father's being introduced as like a neurosurgeon or as a 
a barber. Right. I can't remember. We are, well, at the end, because the Luke Wilson's character says something, I, I says introduces him and or goes up to him and talks to him and he says something like, "Well, so I heard you're a doctor. No, I'm a barber, but I get that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> just I, I like that little connection or there's something there. Like I like that there is a story that we haven't seen. There's like another Rushmore movie in yeah. that movie that we mm-hmm. haven't seen because it's so flushed out. Right, and his dad's significantly older than him. There's like a story there too. Mm-hmm. Like oh, Seymour yeah. Cass- Castle, Castle Cassell, yeah, was fifty years older probably than than mm-hmm. a fifteen year old. So there was something going on there too that was always kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, no, I yeah, you could catalog the whole list of like, and some of them are big, and some of them are just ones you're like, why did you even? So I I do like that. Uh, Max's ultimate character trait is that he is like just this little liar. Yeah. Is it is it really lying, or is he reassembling the world? I think of him as just a child who lost his mother, who's kind of uh, been traumatized, and now he's kind of reassembling the world in a way that fits Max Fisher. Sure, that's smarter than what I just said. So we'll go with we'll that. go with it. Sure, yeah. But he lies to people that are trying to get close to him. He he tells falsehoods, and he actually he aggrandizes these very sincere people. Whoever he has left, his father, he he tries to aggrandize him by making him a neurosurgeon and not a barber. Yeah. Well, his dad's the one person he doesn't lie to, really. I guess that's true. Like, the, he's the only constant one. Like, he actually comes home and gives him the, the shitty report card to sign. He doesn't, like, forge doesn't, a signature or something like that. He does try to hide it, yeah. yeah. Hmm. That's a good observation. Uh, Richard, uh, bring us home. All right, so I mentioned that I, we kind of talked about it a little bit with my last one, but it's Margaret Yang, mm-hmm. kind of the character of Mar- Margaret Yang and what she represents to kind of put a bow on the movie. You know, She is, in some ways, very similar to Max. I mean, I think they, they have a lot of the same kind of... Eccentricities. Oddball tendencies, yeah. I mean, she was she would they would definitely move to Brooklyn together, you know, or something like that <laughs> yeah. when they're done. I, I do like when he says... Uh, He's like, oh, I have guitar class. We can get you out of that to audition. And he's like, classical or electric? It's just like so out of the blue. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. so strange. And and you mentioned kind of the end of the kind of the whole heaven and hell, what that kind of wraps up. And partially it kind of wraps up their relation, not wraps it up, but brings their relationship kind of together at the end. They they wind up getting introduced as she get winds up getting introduced as his new boyfriend, and he kind of scuffles around that, but you know, and, and the fact that I think isn't there an earlier scene where they're doing a play and it's like some sort of like, like cholo thing, right? Yeah, when they're yeah. doing the uh, yeah, is it for is it for Serpico? No, I don't think it was. It was later because she's in it, and the Serpico was for the Rushmore. Yeah, but there's hmm. there, there's a scene where she's like the chola girl and he's the main character. I wonder what movie they were like. What movie he was ripping off for that? I I thought it was like American Me, maybe or something like that. Hmm. But and they they. The scene is supposed to end with them kissing, and he literally just goes, and they kiss. Yeah, and he moves on from it. And it's kind of like, er. Hmm. But then, of course, by the end of the uh, end of Heaven and Hell, they actually do kiss, and it's like this sort of, they actually have a relationship now. It's not just this kind of, hey, we're two odd people. And, and of course, the interesting thing about her, Margaret Yang, is part of it is it's just the actress who played her, Sarah Tanaka. Mm-hmm. Who is now a was at the time was actually a student at Brown University, was cast for the role partially because she brought wore her own glasses. I mean, she took her glasses off, her eyes immediately crossed, and Wes Anderson said, "Okay, that's the perfect person to play her." <laughs> You're a real 
jerk to me, you know that? So she was a student at uh, Brown University when she was cast in this role. And did the role, did a few other movies, and then went back to Brown, and now she's a doctor hmm. working right in Chicago. Just basically did did her movie stuff, and then you said, "Oh, I'm done with that," and went on and just you know yeah. did something actual, real, actually real with her life. Yeah. Do you think the fake, you know, the make believe Margaret Yang, uh, Max Fisher relationship after this? Do you think he's a changed person, or do you think that Margaret becomes kind of his new Rushmore? Well, because you at the end doesn't he ask her something about can you do an Australian accent? Because he was thinking about doing something set in the outback. Hmm. So there is that little hint of maybe he's just looking at her as more of a of a muse or something to like that. But I think I think the point of it isn't that he is completely changed. I mean, there, he's always going to be Max Fisher. And he's always he, going to be kind of a. He does kind of have that like that one last con in the movie too, where he yeah. signals to the DJ and. Uh, dances with Miss Cross and like it's everything was still ultimately a setup for him to dance with her right one last time sure yeah yeah but so I don't think that I think he's not a changed person like he's still gonna have that kind of Max Fisher kind of like on guy on the hustle kind of thing always trying to come up with a scheme kind J- of like a bad a bad Don Knotts mm-hmm. character or something well, that the people in his life won't be a tool to get to the next. Uh, production, but they'll be, but maybe he'll be a little bit more authentic with them. With them, at yeah. least, yeah. yeah. Jeff, can you write a sequel to Rushmore? <laughs> Rushmore, Rush even more. Rushmore two, Rush Rushmore harder. four with uh, Jackie Chan. <laughs> <laughs> Rushmore four, Porky's Revenge. Was <laughs> I read that the guy who produced Porky's two, a guy who directed, wrote and directed Porky's to Bob Clark? I forget what his yeah, name was. Yeah, also did um, Christmas, a Christmas Story. Story, yeah. And he, he agreed to do Porky's two so he could do a Christmas Story. A Christmas Story is one of the most wonderful, authentic, sincere holiday productions, and Porky's was, <laughs> was one of the most ridiculous <laughs> films of the 80s or 90s. So uh, it's uh, my opportunity at this point to, before judging who is the victor in this competition, to say what my the thing I liked most about Rushmore is ultimately what it meant for the career of Wes Anderson. I remember when I first saw Rushmore in the theater, I loved it, but also was a little bit critical of this person who seemed to cobble together a film based on other films or experiences, and it seemed like he was weaving a quilt, like Max Fisher did, uh, of stuff that he liked from other things. But if you watch the film again, you see uh, Life Aquatic previews and all the Jacques Cousteau stuff. And you see what Wes Anderson has done in many of other films, and that is paint a portrait of somebody who has succeeded within an institution but then outgrown it. If you think of the, uh, the Ray Fiennes character in the uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, here's somebody who is a masterful concierge who has uh, risen to the top of his form, in this institution, and then has outgrown it once he sees the, the the horribleness that is happening with the war around him. Or like Moonrise Kingdom. I mean, here's a kid who's the A-list number one Boy Scout that ever was, but a lot of the people around him, the adults who are part of this institution, have become, he sees that they're all unhappy, he sees that they're kind of confining him, and he breaks free. 
So that's one thing that I really kind of admire about this film is it really kind of set the tempo of the rest of Wes Anderson's career and proved that he's really kind of an authentic storyteller, has these themes like a lot of storytellers do that they explore and grow throughout the rest of their career. Are we going to do the uh, best things about Royal Tenenbaums with 50th, 50th episode? 50th. Uh, no, I've got something yeah. else planned. Okay. You know what? This is like a, okay, a side note, guys. Had you read that Wes Anderson and I think Owen Wilson were big fans of Roald Dahl and that this film was one of their explorations of the storyline of this kind of wise, smart kid, clever kid who was kind of taking down this institution. No, that's great, though. Yeah, but it does have that kind of... um, He should make make a movie out of a Roald Dahl book. (laughs) Maybe with some stop-motion animation. Out of Fox or two. Yeah. So uh, now's the time where I summarize the loser's choices. The loser in this case is Richard Manfredi. Um, even though Richard came out swinging with the Herman Bloom speech, which I thought was classic Bill Murray because it was always the kind of underdog against the establishment, which he was in Meatballs and Stripes right. and all that stuff. Um, and Drunk Max Fisher, which was really a great broad scene in a film that's filled with kind of snappy, uh, intelligent dialogue. Um, then Heaven and Hell, which Michael also chose, and then the invocation of Margaret Yang, who was uh, um, this was one this is one uh, really great selection of elements from that film that I really liked. But I like Michael's better because, and here's why: because it really kind of created the journey that a lot of protagonists in films go on, and that is from uh, codependence to independence. I think of. Uh, of um, Max Fisher as somebody who was really kind of codependent with Rushmore. He needed Rushmore a little bit more than it needed him because uh, the dean was going to evict him from Rushmore. And he evolved from the guy who was in every uh, every club. He founded a lot of the clubs. You know, then Herman Bloom asks him, what's his secret? And he starts to kind of speak it out loud and kind of figure what his, I think, his trajectory is. And then that heaven and hell is really kind of his descent into facing this this uh, world that perhaps uh, Rushmore um, maybe was his Vietnam <laughs> that he couldn't get out of. He was in the shit. He was in the shit with, with Rushmore. And then confronting the lack of self-honesty that he had when, when we realized that Max is a liar and he's fabricated this world that just isn't authentic. So, God, Guys, Jeff I, makes me sound so much smarter than I actually am. It's amazing. Michael, you can expect some bees in your bedroom tonight. <laughs> Jeff, I would check your brake line. Oh, crap. Richard is threatening us. Oh, well. right over Richard's bicycle. <laughs> somebody, somebody cue the who. <laughs> so this has been the 25th episode of the Mount Rushmore podcast. We are so happy to bring this podcast to you, and we wish for 25 more fun ones. This has been Jeff. This is Richard. I'm Michael. Are you... Oh, is the video available? Oh, you will listen to it and not put it in comments. I think I okay. called, did I call him Herman Bloops? Did I do that? Yeah. Yeah, let's re-record that. <laughs>